In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Do you find yourself making the same mistakes in your relationships? For example, do you have a tendency to ignore red flags and constantly end up in relationships that aren't healthy for you? Or maybe you end up in a relationship where the initial chemistry is good, but a few months later, you're looking for any way out. Well, if any of those descriptions describe you or a friend who needs some advice, then give this podcast a listen. My guests today argue that your problem is that you let yourself get suckered by love. Their names are Michael and Sarah Bennett. Michael is a psychiatrist. Sarah is Michael's daughter and a comedy writer. I had them on the show previously to talk about their book, F Feelings. In their latest book, F Love, they focus on the most messed up feeling of all, love. And despite the irreverent title of the book, the Bennett's provide surprisingly solid and old-fashioned advice when it comes to establishing long-lasting and fulfilling relationships. They discuss why our emotions can lead us astray in relationships and why men are actually more prone to being bamboozled by romantic feelings than women. They then share both the red flags and the positive qualities you should be on the lookout for in a partner if you want a happy relationship. They also discuss what you should do in a relationship in which you're not happy and why couples therapy is often not very useful. This podcast is full of laughs as well as some seriously helpful insights on how to navigate relationships effectively. Don't worry, despite the title of the show, the show is family-friendly, safe for work, so you don't have to worry about anything like that. There's no bad, salty language in it. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is flove. All right. Dr. Michael Bennett, Sarah Bennett, welcome back to the show. We're glad to be here. Yes, hello. Thank you. So last time we had you on, we had had you on a year ago to talk about your book, F Feelings. And we got a, a great response with it. The whole idea of it, you're, you're a shrink, Michael. And the idea is based on your experience and your practice is just letting people know that feelings are overrated and you, you can't put too much credence into them and how to manage those feelings we have. But you got a new book out about one of the most troublesome feelings that has plagued humanity since Adam and Eve, basically. F love. And it's uh, subtitled One Shrink Sensible Advice for Finding a Lasting Relationship. And the whole thrust of the book is basically love Love is overrated. Why, why is that? Why is love overrated and how does it lead us astray in life? Um, uh, sweetie, you want to uh, take that one? Oh, well, sure. Also, this is maybe a good time to mention since there's been some confusion with people that don't know us. We are not married. He is my father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he called you sweetie. <laughs> I know. But it's better than him calling me bunny or any number of names I've had since childhood, so I'll take it. So why is love overrated? Well, we're we're talking here, this book is for people that are trying to figure out how to have a long-lasting relationship or whether they want one in the first place. Um, And when you're really looking for someone that you want to be with for the rest of your life, the romance element isn't really that important in the long run. 
I mean, I, I'm not a married person. I'm sort of a happily not married person, but my parents have been married for 40 years. My sister's been married for, I don't know, 10 years with four kids. Um, and what we always say is that the bulk of married life isn't about flowers and chocolates. It's about, you know, wiping children's butts or just paying bills or doing stuff that isn't romantic at all. Uh, so when you really follow your feelings and follow your heart or your gut, uh, you know, another thing we always say, follow your brain, not your gut. Your gut's literally full of shit. Um, so that's why it's important to not get tied up in romance and good feeling when your goal is to be with someone through a lot of boring or bad feelings <laughs> or a lot of conflict. Because that's really what a lot of marriage is, to know that you have a strong enough partnership that you can get through that stuff and still like each other, even if you're not still totally hot for each other all the time. And this isn't to say that romance, you can't, you shouldn't discount romance completely. It's a part, but it's only a part of a relationship. Exactly. You can't force yourself to be with someone that you don't feel some spark with or have, you know, some romantic attraction to. But when you're looking for that partner who you want to be with long term, the romance part isn't the most important. It has to be there to some degree or else, you know, you're going to end up presenting the crap out of whoever you're with and being really annoyed with yourself. You sort of force yourself to be with someone. But there's so much stuff that's more important than romance in the long term. And if you want to be with someone for the long term, you can't let romance blind you to uh, those elements and whether they're there or not. You see, I, I see a lot of people in my practice who are um, uh, suffering because their relationships are falling apart. Uh, they're on the edge of divorce. or uh, And it, it's not that um, the romance uh, has dried up. It has more to do with uh, the pressures that come from survival or raising kids or going through economic hard times. If one of them doesn't work as hard as the other or isn't reliable or doesn't hang around, um, um, isn't a steady kind of person, it creates uh, so much pain and disappointment and there's nothing anybody can do about it once you get to that point. So this is a, a sort of a plea for people to be their own matchmaker, even if they're carried away by lots of love and attraction. Uh, they have to have some to, you know, to make somebody eligible, uh, but to go through a sort of logical, sensible, routine way of vetting and screening people so that they don't wind up with the heartbreak I see five or 10 years later. Yeah, we'll talk about how you screen that. But I think it's interesting about your approach. It, it is in a lot of ways old fashioned because I think in the past few, this particularly in the 20th century, this idea that a relationship should be all about love, you know, and you have to have that spark and you have that chemistry. And if you don't have that chemistry anymore, then you just end the relationship. And it seemed like before the 20th century, love was or relationships or marriage was more practical. Like you, you married someone because they were going to help you further your goals. You're going to help them further their goals. Uh, you could establish, you know, you created a family. You could help uh, each other economically, and so it was all. It was it was very geared towards that. And it seems like you're in a way reviving that a little bit. Very much so. Um, and in previous times, uh, families knew one another more. There was less mobility. You have more and more single people in the city where there's nobody to do any screening for them, where families don't know one another, where you don't know uh, if you see somebody on uh, 
Tinder or Match.com, you don't know what their backgrounds are or whether they are who they say they are. So you have to do it all yourself. All right. So let's talk about uh, the screening process. So instead of searching for a soulmate, which um, a lot of people, it's the goal for relationships, someone that fulfills them, completes them, as Jerry Maguire said, you suggest seeing yourself as a romance recruiter. So what what does this involve? Uh, well, the, the major things I think you, you look for, I think recruiter is a really good word to use because a lot of the common sense elements are the same ones that people use when they're recruiting somebody for a job. I think you begin by asking yourself what you want the person for, what they're supposed to do to make your life better. Uh, so, you know, do you want them to start uh, so you can start a family? Uh, do you desperately need some more financial resources in order to do what you want to do? Do you need somebody who's calm because you get very, very anxious? Um, the things that you think you need, um, you want to list them. <laughs> it's a good way to begin. And uh, put that into a job description. And then you try to think of the aspects of, of character and accomplishment that need to be there, which is exactly, of course, what you do when you recruit somebody for any job. The experience they have to have, the, uh, the strength of character, um, reliability, honesty, uh, their ability with money. Um, and once you get into that mindset, uh, I think you have a, a grounding that helps you when you do fall in love and care a lot about somebody that you can keep on coming back to um, so that you hold off a little bit on the intimacy and the trust until you're really sure they they check out. Yeah, because a lot of the patients my father sees that have romance or relationship-related issues, I mean, he said, you know, already said a huge segment of them are people getting divorced, but the other chunk of them are people, usually women, that are getting burned out on online dating. Um, and that's why having a sort of list for yourself, whether it's you've literally written it down or you've just given it good consideration. I mentioned that because the idea of doing homework for me personally seems entirely irritating and daunting. And that's what writing a list seems like. But really thinking about it so that when you do look at profiles and subsequently decide on dating someone, you don't waste time uh, trying to figure out you know, well, I know this guy seems like he might not be right in these ways, but he seems really nice. Maybe I should give him a chance. No, hold firm to your standards. So you don't end up spending a lot of time with a guy because you feel obliged to, you don't want to be mean. You're not being mean uh, to him and you're being mean to yourself because you're going to end up burned out and going to see a shrink in, you know, an office building in middle of nowhere in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, so keep that list in mind to keep yourself from not wanting to date period. <laughs> it's what's going to keep you from really burning out entirely. So I mean, what are some of the, the things you should be looking? It's like, just like big picture things you should be looking for in a person to figure out like, this would be good. This person would be good for a, a long-term fulfilling relationship. Well, they'd be very, very much. If you were going into business partnership, you'd look for these these same things. You'd look for uh, reliability, a good track record with relationships, a good track record of being honest and responsible. If they aren't good at money, that they let you manage their money. Uh, you look at what they've spent their money on as an expression of what their values are, what they care most about. 
Uh, how hardworking are they? How decent are they? Those are the kind of things that are really going to matter in the long run. And as you, you said in the book, I mean, these things are important because they're character attributes and character attributes typically are static. I mean, the, the temperament we have now is probably the temperament we're going to have when we're 40 or 50. I think there's a lot of idea that people think, well, if I just, if I marry her, like she'll change, I can help change her. But that typically doesn't happen, right? Uh, you put your, put your finger on it. Uh, most people come to uh, shrink because they really want something to change. And it's clear by that time that what they're upset about was there at the beginning. And it's not one of those things that's going to change. We also talk about how you can tell whether somebody's going to change. I mean, it's, a, it's not a, a matter uh, that shrinks have any great insight into. It's common sense. Uh, first of all, does, does somebody really want to change, not just to make you happy, but because they don't like that quality in themselves? And then second of all, when they really try, do they get anywhere if they want to try? You know, if, if you want them to change, but they don't see it, they're not motivated other than to make you happy, you know what's not going to happen. And that's, you know, that's when people come to see a shrink and say, you talk to him and you try to make him understand that he needs to change, except if they haven't been able to make somebody see, I can't do it. It's, you know, it's game over and you just have to accept that they are who they are. Yeah, it's not even a matter necessarily of change as much as management, you know, if you know you have a terrible temper and you try and learn, uh, you know, exercises and anger management, uh, then at least you, you recognize the issue and you, you're doing all that you can about it. But if you meet someone and figure out you know, they have a bad temper and they don't even want to talk about it, then that's not going anywhere. That person doesn't even think they have a problem that needs management in the first place. Uh, and that should be a major sign that this is probably not going to work out. Well, this is thinking like some major signs, like red flags, right? People always talk about relationship red flags that you should be on the lookout for. Are there any red flags that people should look out for that are in the words of Liz Lemon from 30 Rock Deal Breakers? Well, I always try and point out what should be obvious ones, uh, but aren't because they are really attractive qualities. Um, you know, in terms of people that uh, you meet them and they, they're very intense and they don't have a lot of boundaries because that can be very exciting. But that's usually, the, especially if it's women, those are the kind of women that guys later say, you know, all women are crazy. And it's like, no, you, you just dated someone who was literally crazy. Someone's telling you uh, their life story and how much they want to make a baby with you within an hour of meeting you. That should have been obvious that that's not a stable human being. But it's a very attractive thing or guys that are sort of, you know, uh, the, the sexiness of not seeming to care about a lot or, you know, the, the, all the cliches that go into the bad boy. Um, these are very clear signs, as appealing as they might be, that some guy doesn't, you know, seems to live in a leather jacket or, God forbid, couch surf eternally or use a lot of drugs. These are all things that you think, oh, well, that's obviously terrible. But some part of our lizard brain is like, oh, that guy seems nice. No, no, not good. Not good. Red flag. Don't get suckered in. And it's easier as you get older, certainly, because you just sort of, you've been there and you've done that, or, you know, you've seen it happen to your friends, or you're just, you know, a jaded old fart. But um, it's certainly important to, to remind the youth or remind yourself 
that is, and you know, lots of women fall into the trap of falling for the same kind of loser over and over again. And, you know, certainly like the guys I mentioned that say all women are crazy. At a certain point, you need to recognize that you have a weakness for these really bad attributes that are really appealing, unfortunately, and that you cannot let yourself fall into that trap again. But the most obvious, the things that you think would be the most obvious red flags for, you know, just because they create that attraction all of the time, they, they aren't. They end up being green or checkered flags and uh, drawing people into these bad relationships they should have known to avoid in the first place. But, but it's hard, though. Um, they've done studies on this and I've, we've written about is that lo like love literally blinds us. Like we have all these chemicals when we're in that romantic feel good phase of a relationship at the beginning, like it literally, like we just become dumb. Like we ignore these, these things. And what I think is interesting too, is that men have a tendency to fall in love faster than women. Like they, they just, they really hit it hard. And so you tend to overlook these things. So how do you battle that? How do you battle those, the, the dopamine, the oxytocin, whatever that oxytocin stuff that floods your brain, that makes you blind to these red flags or these attributes? How do you overcome that? Uh, well, our, our advice was simply to borrow um, well-established techniques in business and say, uh, develop your techniques while, while you're feeling particularly sane and grounded, drawing on your past experience before the endorphins hit you and before you go blind <laughs> with sex or lust or love or, or neediness or whatever, and, and stick with it. And then use your experiences to where your weaknesses are. Sarah often talks about recruiting a friend and asking your friend to hit you over the head <laughs> if they think you're making the same mistake. So it's not personal. You're not saying to your friend, do you like him? Uh, do you like the way we are together? Do we look good together? Are we good for one another? You're saying to your friend, if if you think I haven't done my due diligence and if you think uh, this person is showing some bad signs, don't hesitate to speak up and, and tell me to review the facts harder and, look, you know, um, improve my technique. <laughs> yeah, in terms of, you know, we say to make a list of the qualities you want, but if you have a habit of dating losers over and over again, um, it's worth sitting down and making a list of the qualities those losers had in common. You know, they, they didn't have a fixed address. They had final notice bills uh, lying around whatever home they were crashing at. Uh, they seemed to be using a lot of drugs and not being very open about it. You know, and then giving that list to your friends and saying, if I bring a guy around or meet, if you're with me in a bar and a guy has any of these qualities, feel free to tap me on the shoulder uh, and say, hey, this guy's got three, five, and, and just a heads up, uh, you wanted me to tell you, and I'm telling you. So it's not, uh, it doesn't feel like a personal attack on the new love of your life. But it's also, you know, in terms of, you have your wing woman or really your, your bodyguard that could help you to avoid those feelings. But like you said, one thing I, I found interesting that my dad told me years ago <clears throat> is that if he has patients that are bipolar, especially women, and they feel mania coming on. One of the signs is sometimes that men start finding them irresistible. You know, like they'll, men will stop them on the street. And that, that to them is, aside from any of the other internal or, you know, mental signs to them that maybe they're becoming a little unbalanced, releasing this mystery chemical of nuttiness <laughs> is, 
that is a magnet for guys as always to them a reminder like oh uh, i probably need to check in with my shrink and maybe adjust my meds i think i'm going a little off so yeah there is a very strong <laughs> natural uh, magnetism uh, that even among sane people that can be very hard to ignore but if you have fallen victim to being tricked over and over again into dating the same bad people or are just you know get fall in love too fast like you said it's worth having someone spot you but it's also you know in, in doing events for this how the audience breaks down to the majority of it being women instead of men you know it's i don't know whether it's biological or whether it's conditioning but certainly since the age of 11 or 12 i've been remember being at summer camp and issues of 17 and YM being passed around that had quizzes in them, you know, that's kind of why we put them in the book that are, I say, well, what kind of guy is right for you? What, what kind of guy is meshes with your horoscope, you know, all that nonsense. And I don't think guys are asked to think that way. I, again, I don't know if it's women naturally think that way or not, but I know that that isn't what's in guy magazines, it's usually gay for boobies or whatever. Uh, or as I keep joking around, sometimes I think the checklist that guys develop is based on country songs in terms of does she wear tight jeans? Will she ride the back of my pickup and party down by the creek? You know, guys need to think more about this stuff in general, I think, so they don't fall in love so fast. So they develop a better BS detector that women have been developing since they were tweens, you know? I, I think it will be more helpful to them. It will... <laughs> save their sanity more, save them from heartbreak, save their credit. Because um, women, like I said, we've been trained for years and we're doing the best we can, but men need to get some of that training themselves, not just for our sake, but for their own. So let's, let's, so the rest of the book, you, you delve into different attributes that we think make for a good relationship or a great partner. And we've been kind of talking about it a little bit, but individuals who seem magnetic, you're just drawn to them because they have this personality that just just draws you to them. It's this idea of charisma. And you guys say, yeah, charisma is overrated. How is it that, that charisma can get in the way of a, a good relationship? I mean, any examples from your experience, Michael, with patients that where they fell for a charismatic person or they themselves are very charismatic and it caused some heartache in the end? Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, each of these qualities can be very attractive, but they each carry their own dangers. If you're very charismatic and attract a lot of people, you really have more trouble figuring out who really likes you for yourself. It's a kind of personality beauty. So you have to be better at, at sifting through things to see what relationships really are right for you. Because, you know, when you're really popular, everybody wants to talk to you. On the other hand, if, if you're attracted to somebody charismatic, you have to find out whether, in spite of the charge and the pleasure you get from talking to them, whether they're caught up in it so much like the social world that after a while you get you get lost in uh, you know as soon as you stop being a novelty. Do they really really uh, like you and have a good reason to build a life with you, or do they like socializing or or politicizing things so much that? After a while, your your novelty wears off. You have to be careful with that. And reading a little bit about charismatic people or reading a novel can kind of alert you to the dangers and help you keep your eye, eyes open until you're more confident that the relationship is bigger and deeper than just a matter of uh, mutual attraction. 
when I was reading this, I mean, as I was reading your book, the thing that came to mind is like, man, you know who would like this book? I think Jane Austen would really dig this book. Cause like I've read her novels and her novels seem to be like, yeah, love with your heart, but also love with your head. Like it's okay to have some passion, but like you also got to be careful for the Mr. Darcy's out there and kind of not, not, not be uh, carried away by their, by your sort of that visceral reaction you have to people. Yeah, she's my patron uh, saint, I think. <laughs> you know, her villains are guys who are very good at communicating and getting close quickly. And suddenly our heroine finds she's able to open up and be very sympathetic with somebody she's she's never known before. And only later does she find out that he's uh, taken money that he didn't have or that he betrayed somebody. Uh, it happens again and again, and especially for women in that age when they didn't have any resources of their own, they weren't allowed to inherit. These are women where it's a survival issue. If they uh, slip with a guy, their, their lives are over. So in a certain way, it's a, these are life and death dramas. Uh, they aren't just, you know, drawing room uh, chatting. And then the people that were solid would often be guys who were less communicative, less easy to talk to, somewhat tongue-tied, harder to get to know. But then when you got to know them, you, you got information that they were always reliable, that they would put themselves out for you, that once they cared about you, they didn't get distracted very easily. So yes, I think she really set the boundaries and the themes that, that we need to pay attention to today. And she also, I'm realizing, uh, is it Bingley in Pride and Prejudice, the guy who runs off with her younger sister? Uh, the red flag of guys that talk about people who've wronged them uh, people that are women too. Anyone who talks about ex-friends or you know being betrayed, that's usually a huge red flag that this person uh, betrays other people a lot. That they are you know to use the clinical term and explanation from our first book, uh, well the censor version, an a-hole, because a-holes tend to get into fights with people because they feel like that person has done them wrong because they feel like they're incapable of doing wrong. An a-hole is the world's perfect victim. They're the only righteous person on earth. So if someone uh, very quickly in a boundaryless way starts talking about, well, this person uh, wronged me, and you know, but really it turns out that you tried to run off with their younger sister as, well, yeah, it's probably prejudice. They're all one swirl of you know, PBS miniseries in my head. But that, that is an Austin-era red flag that exists to this day. It's, she was teaching us all an important lesson. There's a character in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth Bennett's best friend, who is a little old and doesn't have any money and is, you know, fair, you know only fair-looking. And she really wants to have a family. So she accepts a proposal from a rather socially awkward and somewhat repulsive <laughs> minister who's a reliable guy and, you know, he'll make a living and uh, he won't mess around and he'll be helpful around the house. But he certainly isn't a terribly attractive person. And Elizabeth says to her old friend, she said, how could you lower yourself to to marry that creep? And her friend um, very correctly says to her, look, you've got better prospects. 
this is the best compromise I can make. And I do it willingly and proudly. Uh, she's a sort of minor character, but she's really at the moral center of Jane Austen's universe. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's some great stuff. So yeah, if you guys haven't read Jane Austen, I, I re even recommend guys read Jane Austen because there's, there's a lot you can learn from that 18th century female writer. Let's talk about some of the other characteristics that often get overrated in relationships. And one of them you talk about is communication, which is crazy because all like most of the, the books about relationship out there about how to communicate better, you know, the Mars versus Venus thing. That's why uh, marriage therapists exist. So people, couples can learn how to communicate better. But you all say that's it's all for naught, pretty much. Why do you think communication is overrated in a relationship? Well, certainly in a lot of cases, women are looking for verbal communication. But there are, you know, there are a lot of guys out there that don't ver necessarily communicate what they feel verbally, but through their actions. So, you know, you might be dating a guy who is kind of silent at the dinner table at night, but he does do all the dishes and he then shovels the snow out of the driveway and later make sure that, you know, the kitchen is cleaned up and the garbage is taken out. And to me, or what, you know, my father would recommend after seeing couples or women that come in and complain about this, it's what's really more important. You know, and there, it's not like you can't get chat elsewhere. We always say, you know, get a cat or go get a haircut, hang out with your girlfriends. There are lots of people that will want to talk about those sorts of things. But if you're dating someone who shows good character and caring through what they do, even and not through the conversation that they have, that that's worthwhile, that that's worth keeping an eye on. Just being able to communicate um, through conversation isn't really all that important if the communication is coming through in other ways. Uh, also, you know, one of my favorite jokes I wish I could take credit for, but that is my dad's and I'm, I might have even said it before. I will probably have it as my epitaph because it's just, it's so funny to me because um, it's a fart joke, which is sort of my raison d'etre. But that a lot of people, when they go into um, marriage counseling, that they're going with for a referee um, not so much to resolve issues, but to declare a winner. But they also feel like they need to communicate and vent. And what my father said is that the venting of, you know, marital disputes in therapy is often like the venting of intestinal gas. It gives you a moment of catharsis, but then poisons the air for you and everyone around you for an indeterminate period of time. Uh, you know, there are some things that you should not communicate because they will only lead to more conflict or they will create lingering resentment that does not go away. Uh, so if somebody can communicate positive feelings through positive actions, or if you learn to withhold certain communication because you know it's not going to have any positive result and will in fact have a lot of negative result, verbal communication or communicating feelings, et cetera, is not a good thing. Um, it's important to know what to communicate and when or how to communicate it best, but not to just communicate, period. The sort of value on communication uh, in any form is not a positive <laughs> in a marriage long term. That, that's why we get into as much as it would be nice if you could solve all your problems by bedtime and feel better when you go to sleep, that there are a lot of problems you can't solve by bedtime. Um, there are some differences that are never going to get solved. And so sometimes if you want um, to do your best by your marriage, you have to uh, take your anger or your hurt and just do your best and try to 
and try to get to sleep. And the next morning, either you're going to decide it's just not something it's worth talking about, or you're going to figure out a better way to talk about it than you would have when you were uh, feeling tired and hurt. That uh, marital communication is as much as, as nice as it, as it is to be spontaneous. It's such an important partnership. It really makes sense to be careful about what you say. Yeah, I mean, we put it as... The, we always thought the expression was don't go to bed angry. One um, interviewer we spoke to from Texas said that there they say, don't let the sun set on your anger. <laughs> and we explained that maybe sometimes it's better to have that happen than let it rise on your infinite regret. So. <laughs> <laughs> we want to write our happy song. <laughs> All right. So another thing that people are often told to look for when they're doing this relationship sleuthing to see if someone's right for them is to look at their family life. You know, look if they have a good relationship with their family, if their their parents have a good, strong relationship, because the idea is, well, if they grew up in a, a positive family life and they grew up with parents that put a good example of what a good marriage should look like, well, then that's going to carry over to my relationship with that person. But you guys argue that's not necessarily the case. Why is that? Well, we're always looking at the potential uh, higher risk that goes with that because with every benefit in medicine, you know, with every benefit of any treatment, there's also a risk. And in this case, it often has to do with boundaries that if you've got a really nice family and you're very close to them, are you good at... Um, uh, pushing away from them and creating your own family with your own partner and uh, knowing when not to get together with or not to listen to or respond to your own family because you're starting your own and your partnership is is more important. So that uh, sometimes people who are attracted by somebody who's very close to their family find out later on he's too close to his family. He can't say no to them. He can't shut the door on them. He can't keep uh, talking, telling them everything and sharing too much. And uh, creating that boundary is very important. So closeness is very attractive and warmth is very attractive. But boundaries are really essential when you're, when you're starting up a relationship. And they're also essential, not just if you have a very close family, but if you have very crazy parents. <laughs> I just... I. I talk to uh, New York Magazine's uh, blog about relationships where I mentioned that my my father's mother, my grandma was, and I said the clinical term was insane. Now, she's been dead for 20 years, so her feelings would not be hurt by that. But my dad managed to keep her crazy uh, from impacting our family negatively uh, by creating those boundaries, by telling her when she would show up for a weekend visit uh, with enough giant suitcases for a two-week visit <laughs> that it was not going to become a two-week visit that he was very happy that she was coming to see us and uh, really appreciated her company but you know because of our work and school schedules it was a trip that was going to end on Monday morning as discussed and that that is an easy thing to do with your parent and it's generally not easy to have a crazy parent overall um, as my father has explained to me through stories of his childhood many times uh, but your your spouse and your kids did not sign up for that. You know, this you created this family, and they they have to come first. So it's it's not an easy skill to acquire, but it's a necessary one, a not impossible one. If you do come from a nutty family and you are trying to create a not nutty family. 
But it could go the other way too. Like the your potential partner might have fantastic parents and you're like, wow, what a great family. I want to be part of this family. But like the actual, your partner, like they're actually crazy. Like they, like the, the, the fruit, the apple fell far from the tree. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, that can, that, that, that actually can lead you astray. Yeah. It's, you know, there are plenty of examples of people who married someone because their parents are so loving, but they're not a great parent themselves. You know, uh, and you could try and explain that in a shrinky way in terms of the parenting had X and Y effect. Um, and I, you know, I write fart jokes. I won't even bother to try. The important thing is to just not get blinded to actually look at your, your partner's track record, not just at their parents' track record. Um, you know, because that's, that's what every chapter is about. It's looking at these traits beyond the superficial assumption that they're all good traits that a good family is always good or sense of humor is always good. Um, because yes, definitely someone who comes from an excellent family, a sane family can be not so excellent or sane themselves. <laughs> uh, when therapy was sort of uh, getting going, therapists would put a great deal of weight on how you could create trust, confidence, and reliability in your kids by being good parents. And the reverse was that if you saw good parents, you'd assume that the kids would be pretty good. But I think what you see over time in your own life is that some really good parents sometimes have some very, very difficult kids. And some very difficult parents have some really good kids. And the only explanation is that uh, genetics is kind of a lottery. So that you got to be very careful not to make assumptions, uh, which is exactly what you're saying. So uh, another thing that leads people astray uh, are looks, beauty, handsomeness, etc. So I mean, I think we all understand like what are the potential downsides of being in a relationship based purely on physical attraction. I mean, that's like Jane Austen stuff right there. Um, you end up, I think, I forgot which book it was, like the dot, the dad of one of the heroines, like married his wife because she was beautiful and charismatic. And then 30 years later, he despises her. Um, but I mean, what are the downsides of being attractive yourself? Um, you know, you, for whatever reason, genetics has blessed you with physical attraction, attractiveness. What are the potential da downsides of that? A lot of it is you have to be really tough about sizing people up because so many people want to be with you and uh, want to be nice to you. <laughs> you have to know what you want in life so you can pursue it. If you're a nice person and you're sensitive, you may have trouble being tough enough. You may think so much about their feelings and not wanting to cause them pain uh, that you wind up spending too much time and mental effort reacting to all these people who really uh, are not going to turn out to be your friends or significant relations. And in the meantime, you're not making any progress in finding a person who really would be good for you or just going on with your other pursuits. So I think the gift of beauty is a curse unless you also have developed a certain technique of your own for centering yourself and and being tough about rejecting relationships that you just don't want. Yeah, and also for, certainly for women, um, if you are, you know, beautiful or you just have 
certain physical attributes, you know, you have the legs or the butt or the boobs that men are attracted to, uh, you'll get attention, but a lot of it is really creepy. <laughs> it's not the kind of attention that you want, you know, or you're attracting the kind of guys that are kind of yucky or, you know, just seem only interested in you because of, and that can also be really frustrating and really burn you out because, you know, my dad telling me once about a patient who I think did something, their job was somehow appearance-based and they were complaining about relationships. And of course my reaction was, oh, boo-hoo, oh, too pretty, when But no, it was this constant barrage of, of attention from creeps and then dating guys and figuring out pretty quickly, oh, I'm just an accessory to him. You know, he doesn't really care about knowing me. He's, I'm just here to impress his friends. Like he, I've been, I was manipulated. I mean, I can understand now, yes, that that is legitimate. I'm, it, pretty people have hard lives too. <laughs> it's enough that they saw a train. I mean, what do you do if you like, you, you know, you think, okay, I didn't, I got the, I didn't, I didn't win the genetic lottery. Not that attractive. Um, and a lot of people, they, they get, they lose hope about that. Like, I'm never going to be able to find a relationship because I'm not handsome, not good looking. Uh, what do you say to those folks? First of all, you really try to become as independent as you can. I mean, whether you're good looking or not, there's no guarantee you're going to find somebody, particularly if you're a woman. There are always seem to be more women who are interested in and capable of close relationships than there are men. So I think women are always caught a little bit in a musical chairs game. And if they focus too much on whether they can find somebody or not, they're making a big deal out of something they fundamentally don't control. You try to build up your own life and become as aware as you can of the kind of person you need. And then it comes down, once your self-esteem doesn't entirely depend on it, on uh, what you were saying earlier on being a very good headhunter, not wasting your time, not making the kind of compromise that would tie you up with somebody so that you're not free if somebody really good comes along, being really selective. And then whether you find somebody or not, appreciating what a good job you're doing when you're independent and you're selective and you're protecting yourself from those compromises that would be a disaster you're doing a very, very good job. And that's all you can do in life. The rest is not up to you. Well, we also have this thing in the book uh, where we talk about the falsity of the phrase, there's someone for everyone. And, and part of it is based on the fact that when my parents both worked in the public mental hospital, uh, there's someone for everyone was a, a joking catchphrase, which they would use when a patient came in who was extra crazy or usually extra physically gross in terms of they hadn't showered or their crazy was manifest in their uh, love of eating whatever was in public toilets. I mean, really yucky stuff. And those people were always married, always, whereupon everyone on the floor would go, there's someone for everyone. Uh, so usually when you really start thinking, you know, oh, I'm too unattractive, like I'm so unattractive, I'm not going to find anyone. That's, that's just negative thinking, period. I mean, you might have done a sort of realistic assessment and said, yeah, I, I, I weigh more than average or I don't have the nose of my dreams. But if you're really thinking, you know, oh, well, I'm too not good looking enough to find anyone. Trust me, if you were really yucky, if you were really crazy, you would have no trouble finding someone. It's, it has nothing to do with your looks 99% of the time or your, or your breath or any of that stuff. It's really not within your control. Um, 
it's it, it's not that simple. So don't beat yourself up for appearance or even, you know, uh, any number of factors in terms of why you're going to be alone. Because if you really don't want to be alone, just start acting like a lunatic. Um, go to the public mental hospital. I promise you, you will find someone within 24 hours. But it's a pretty high price to pay. Your sanity. It's better to hold on to that. And also, I mean, it seems just to focus on finding someone who displays these characteristics that you talk about in the book. You'll, you'll eventually find them. It might take a while, but you, you'll, you might, you'll, you may find them. So, so far we've been talking about uh, potential long-term relationships. What about people who are already in a relationship, who are already in a marriage? Any advice for them where, you know, they, they're married, five years later they realize that their spouse uh, displays some of these, the downsides of these things we've been talking about. Like they realize, okay, I was attracted to this person's charisma and now I find it kind of grating. Uh, Any advice for them? Like, do they just keep plugging along and just focus on the positive and uh, downplay the the negative aspects? Well, one thing we always talk about, whether it's, you know, confronting your own shortcomings or the shortcomings in a relationship or in a job or anything is doing a a sort of honest assessment. You know, someone might have a a really annoying habit, but uh, look at their qualities overall. Are there positive contributions? Uh, Do they outnumber the negative uh, aspects of their personality or even what they bring to a marriage? If they are always charming people, but you don't have reason to believe that they are, you know, unfaithful and that they're not driven to please other people to the point where they aren't fulfilling their duties as a husband or a father, that they're still spending time with the kids, that they're still keeping on top of their family obligations, then yeah, it is worth sort of just plugging along and finding ways to focus less on it and uh, other things that you can do so you aren't so, uh, so that you're more distracted. If somebody, if you know, you find that the opposite is true, then that's not a quality you can put up with. If someone is so charming that they are always fooling around and they are never home and they're, you know, possibly putting you at risk of any number of venereal diseases. Yeah, that's a deal breaker. Um, but sometimes those qualities are outweighed by positive contributions and positive qualities. And it's it's worth thinking very seriously about that and not just letting your annoyed feelings and your, you know, your general disappointment get in the way of or, or, you know, draw you away from a relationship that is more positive than negative. Uh, sort of after five or 10 years, you've got a lot of uh, money tied up in things you own together. Maybe you've got kids. There's so many reasons to to assess rather than to get into the negative feelings you have when they really irritate you or hurt your feelings. So that doing a kind of independent assessment where you're looking at it in terms of your values and how your partnership advances those values, trying to think about it from your own point of view is just very important uh, way of um, fighting that tendency of getting into the negative feelings that you get when you're hurt or angry. And then if you think the relationship is worthwhile anyway, there are positive ways to discuss differences to see whether you can reduce them or negotiate them. And again, they're very business-like methods. They rely on talking calmly and positively rather than saying, frankly, I hate this and I, you know, I wonder what you mean by it, uh, where you're trying to say more things like, look, I, I like this about our relationship. You do this well, you do that well. 
but this one area really makes you less effective and hurts both of us. And I wonder if you could get more of a handle on it. That when you get yourself in that frame of mind, you, you still can't change people, but you've got a better crack at knowing what you value about the relationship and being somewhat more persuasive. I mean, one in, in talking about how marriage used to be or, or pairing off, it used to be seen in a more practical and pragmatic way. It wasn't just a matter of survival, but it's also that if you were from the same small town or you have the same religious background, that there's a good chance you share the sort of the same values and outlook on life. And if the reason we put that emphasis on looking at someone's values is because if you run into conflicts like this or in other areas, then usually you'll have the same goals. You know, if someone values family and they're distracted from their uh, their family duties, then if you point that out to them in a business-like way, then they will want to get back on track because they care about that as much as you do, even if they're screwing up. So that's why, like, it, it's, it keeps these arguments from being impersonal or keeps them from being muddled because you don't share those goals or you don't see things the same way. If you fundamentally share a goal as in terms of the family that you want based on the kind of people you want to be, having these discussions is a lot less fraught and they're, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be as personal and angry. Right. You have to remind them about the, uh, the corporate mission statement. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Susan, let's read our mission statement again. Um, have some flow charts. <laughs> yeah. There's flow charts uh, and everything. <laughs> a logo. Well, Michael, Sarah, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about the book? Uh, well, we have our website, which we we usually we do answer uh, when people write in with cases, but because we've been so busy promoting and writing books, we've been a little slack. But we hire a millennial who knows how to do social media, too. So our website is um, fxckfeelings.com, um, but we're on Facebook, I think, and Instagram and Tumblr under some and many iterations of that. It's all connected through the website, though. So we're all over the the Fantastic. Well, Sarah and Michael Bennett, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. My guests today were Michael and Sarah Bennett. They're the author of the book F Love. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about their work at fxckfeelings.com. Uh, fxckfeelings.com. You also find our show notes at aom.is slash flove, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show and have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot, getting the word out about the show. So thank you for your reviews. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.